six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision. Hello and welcome to WORT's Community Conversation, a public affair for Thursday, October 27th. I'm your host, Bert Zipper, filling in for Ellen Ruff. I am extraordinarily pleased and honored to have today's guest, Norman Solomon, with us. He's the founder of RootsAction.org. He has a lifetime of peace and justice activism, and he's written a series of books, one of which is War Made Easy, which is an extraordinarily important book. He's also with the Institute for Public Accuracy, a a major media group. Go to accuracy.org to learn more there. And today we're going to be talking about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis and lessons for today. Norman, welcome to WRT. Hey, thanks, Bert. It is great. It's great to have you. You were on Democracy Now! the other day, and I'm proud to say we're going to have you on for five to ten times more minutes (laughs) than than they were able to squeeze you in there. So thanks for being here. Sure. And we invite callers to call in 608-256-2001 to join the conversation. Um, Norman, today... 60 years ago, I'm in first grade in a one-room schoolhouse up in Manitowoc County in School Hill, Wisconsin. But 60 years ago today, the cataclysmic final day of the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. 13 days of crisis. Tremendously important lessons need to be learned. Howard Zinn once said that he went into history not to get lost in the past, but to take the lessons of the past into today and then apply them to build a future that we wish to create. So let's talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, Norman. What do we need to know about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, in terms of the lessons of it, which you allude to, I think that uh, perhaps ironically, some of the best and most important lessons came from John F. Kennedy himself in his uh, renowned speech at the American University afterwards, when he meditated aloud on what his takeaways were. And he really emphasized that when you have a confrontation between two nuclear powers, it's essential not to back your adversary into a corner where they feel they have no option but to continue to escalate. And of course, continued escalation would mean the ultimate, which would be nuclear war. And I think that lesson is is terribly important. Um, You could imagine, having read the histories, that things could have gone very differently, and we wouldn't be here talking, nor would anybody be listening. Exactly. I'm afraid that now the lesson of not backing your adversary into a corner has been uh, really evaded, forgotten, ignored by our own government. And I was really if not shocked, at least disgusted and outraged when early on in the war that Ukraine uh, has been subjected to by the horrible Russian invasion, President Biden essentially said that he sought a different leadership in Russia, also known as regime change. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that we would have liked to think uh, had been learned as a bad idea to say you want regime change of another government, but especially one 
that's a nuclear superpower. And that has been, you know, he sort of, quote, walked it back, but then walked it forward again. And this is the kind of stuff that uh, can have uh, really terrible consequences. Well, and, and you have an article, To Avoid Armageddon, Don't Modernize Missiles, Eliminate Them, which I think is really critically important. Also, I, I read that you skipped school in 1964 to watch Senator Wayne Morris stand up against his president, Senator Wayne Morris of Oregon, regarding the, the upcoming Vietnam War. Um, and you, you highlighted the fact that there's so few voices in Congress today calling out the president and pushing for peace. I think that's an important bit of history. Of course, Morse was only one of two senators to vote against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in 64 that opened the floodgates to the Vietnam War. And you think of it, 100 senators, two no votes, uh, no votes, as I recall, in the House against this uh, blank check, really, uh, to, to escalate the war. And uh, I think it was actually a couple years later when, as a high school student, I went over to hear Senator Morris at a meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. When I think of the situation today, it's not really exactly comparable uh, in terms of the U.S. policy towards Russia and in the arming of Ukraine. But there are many, many similarities. And if anything, the situation in terms of conformity in the Democratic Party is worse. And I bring this up because Morse, of course, was a Democrat. You had Democratic President Lyndon Johnson escalating the war. And for the first years of the Vietnam War, there was virtual silence, just suggestions for tinkering with the escalation coming from Democrats in the House and the Senate. We have groupthink now in Congress about U.S. policy towards Russia and in relation to the Ukraine war. And it's, it's not only tragic, it's, uh, it's very ominous, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. This party loyalty has gone to such an extent, we saw an episode of that in terms of the uh, letter by 30 members of the House that was sent to Biden on Monday and promptly withdrawn. We have conformists in Congress. And the fact that they have D after their name as Democrats doesn't change the way in which the military-industrial complex is greatly adhered to by even the best members of Congress in the sense that they do not rock the boat, especially when the man in the Oval Office is of their party. And we, we've seen this before, and it ends or it continues to go on very tragically. Exactly. Well, let's go back 60 years and, and dig into that for a little bit. 60 years ago, 1962, the midterm elections were coming up, just like today. Kennedy and the Democrats, but Kennedy in particular is being pounded for ignoring the dangerous Soviet missiles in Cuba. Um, and then it turns out, when U-2 flights in October confirm it, that indeed there are missiles there. Um, we've got um, a lot of military pressure. For, 13, for the first week, there's a lot of secret meetings. Kennedy actually tapes those. There are audio tapes of those, which I find fascinating. Um, clearly, he's getting a lot of pressure that we need to bomb and invade Cuba. And seemingly, he's standing alone against the generals. Talk about that. 
That's right. In, initially, we're told that uh, Kennedy was inclined to accept that advice coming from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and others, including, we learn, Lyndon Johnson as vice president, to go ahead and attack, uh, to attack Cuba, in which case the whole trajectory of what we know as a Cuban Missile Crisis would have been clearly different, and uh, the world may have been subjected to a nuclear holocaust from the use of thermonuclear weapons by then the Soviet Union and the United States. And this is, I think, a crystal clear example of how the domestic politics and the perception of those politics can really pressure people at the top levels of government to do things that, by many accounts, would be self-destructive. Absolutely. So it turns out that um, Kennedy goes against that, orders what could be called a quarantine, although, or a blockade, but if you use the word blockade, it's an act of war, so he called it a quarantine, set up a, a Navy blockade of Cuba, and and then the next week is just one crisis after another. Um, Khrushchev, and, and the communication takes a lot of time at that point between Moscow and Washington. It, it ends up with um, some blunders. There's a plane that crashes at, Gu at Guantanamo Bay as it's coming in to re, um, resupply Guantanamo. The, at the end of the week, there's a bomber, a U.S. bomber that wanders into Soviet airspace, reportedly wanders, for 90 minutes, and all sorts of forces are, are um, activated in relation to that. And then... One of our spy planes, the U-2, is shot down over Cuba on October 27th, um, which, at which point Kennedy has committed that he is going to attack Cuba if they shoot down a U-2, and he says there's time to bomb them. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a time in which, case ultimately there could have been sort of the uh, waving the, the bloody shirt, so to speak, that even though the U.S. was over Cuban uh, territory, and uh, as I remember, the pilot lost his life, mm -hmm. this could have easily been, as has so often been the case before and since, reframed as an act of aggression against the United States. And so Kennedy could have easily gone in another direction, and the belligerents would have had basically a very quick domino effect in terms of escalation into a nuclear exchange. And it really, in hindsight, there's virtual or overwhelming agreement that Kennedy was wise to stand up to the belligerents uh, in the media and from major political figures at the time, privately and publicly. But at the time, it's very easy to get swept away. And that's one of the parallels, Bert, that I think mm -hmm. we have between 60 years ago and today. If we can get through uh, the next months and years, I think that a lot of folks will look back at this time as something like the tulip craze uh, several hundred years ago in Holland, mm -hmm. that the frenzy gets carried away with itself. And we're in the midst of that right now in U.S. media, in terms of Russia, in terms of the Ukraine war. We are so caught up in the notion 
that the United States must pour billions of dollars of weaponry into Ukraine and give not even substantial lip service to diplomacy, that the potential results are really, and I exaggerate not here, the deaths of about 7 billion with a B people mm -hmm. on this planet, that is the best estimate from scientists of the result of a thermonuclear exchange between the two countries, about 99% of the human beings on this planet. That's not talked about hardly mm -hmm. at all by our so-called political leaders, nor by our so-called uh, legacy or high quality media. You can listen to NPR, you can listen, watch, read the New York Times or Washington Post, uh, rarely mentioned whatsoever what is at stake? And so the kind of nuclear brinkmanship that is now taking place is enabled by members of Congress who are not willing to speak up. That's why there were demonstrations in about 50 cities uh, about a week ago, including in Madison, mm -hmm. uh, demonstrations at the offices of members of Congress saying, wake up, don't sleepwalk towards Armageddon. And yet the silences are enabling this brinkmanship to continue. So th there was a lot of anti-nuclear worldwide protest in the late 50s and early 60s. Did that have an effect on Kennedy? I think that the information about the fallout and the effects of fallout, you may remember mm -hmm. that some organizers mailed baby teeth to the White House with strontium in the teeth because of the atmospheric nuclear tests. And I think that the activism from scientists and other folks really did have an impact to get the limited uh, nuclear test ban yeah, that was enacted, uh, as I remember, in 1962. So at least above ground tests were banned. That kind of activism is absolutely crucial. And if you look back to the 1980s, when there were demonstrations around the country, when Physicians for Social Responsibility did their last epidemic slideshows, when one million people in 1982 gathered in Central Park to protest the proliferation of nuclear weapons and reckless policies that could endanger the entire planet. It was that activism that made possible the jettisoning of the Cruise 2 and the Pershing the cruise missiles and the Pershing II missiles, the land-based medium-range missiles that were going to be deployed in Europe by the U.S. and likewise uh, the dismantling of Soviet medium-range missiles and in fact the enactment of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty under Reagan and Gorbachev. This was a tremendous victory mm -hmm. by the international peace movement, whether you lived in Wisconsin, California, New York, England, Germany, across Europe, People were demonstrating and brought this about. And here's the, the very sad kicker to this story. In 2019, President Trump withdrew the United States from that very same treaty, the INF Treaty. And here's a further tragic kicker to it. We've had a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president for a long time now. We're, we're going on almost two full years. Where is the reinstatement of that treaty? We don't even hear about it. Mm -hmm. And this is an example. I'm not just blaming I'm not just blaming Biden. I'm blaming Democrats of their 
members of that party, the same party, they're not speaking up because they're too busy going along to get along with the party hierarchy. Exactly. Listeners, I'm inviting you to call 608-256-2001. Join the conversation we're having with Norman Solomon on the Cuban Missile Crisis and the lessons for today. Um, so important. Norman, it seems to me, if you're looking 60 years ago at the Cuban Missile Crisis and the U.S. saying we wouldn't allow weapons from another superpower on our border, it sounds eerily similar to what Putin is saying today in Russia regarding Ukraine and NATO. Um, it seems very similar. How do you see that? Well, I think that's a great insight. It's one that almost never is mentioned in mainstream U.S. media. The tacit U.S. foreign policy message is do as we say, not as we do. In fact, there were nuclear missiles pointed at the Soviet Union from Turkey at the time. Uh, in 1962. The US, in 1962. Yes, right, right. in 1962. And Kennedy, uh, at one point, according to some accounts, was even surprised they hadn't already been taken down. But the, the Soviets knew that uh, in 62, Turkey had these nuclear missiles pretty close to their border. So obviously, the Cuban Missile Crisis was sparked by a realization, uh, a justified opinion from Washington that it's unacceptable to have 90 miles from the U.S. border, these nuclear missiles pointed at the United States. And yet the United States has been deploying nuclear weapons closer and closer uh, to uh, Russia. And we're talking 2022 now, we're talking the present mm -hmm. day. There are an estimated 100 tac quote, tactical nuclear weapons in several countries in Western Europe. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons, uh, often the size of what decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. And another treaty abrogated by the United States, the ABM Treaty, uh, has made possible the deployment of weapons, missiles pointed at Russia in Romania and Poland. And we're told that these are ABMs or anti-ballistic missile. But what we are not told is or rarely told or mentioned is that they can quickly be retrofitted mm -hmm. to offensive missiles. And in fact, uh, Putin was saying as recently as this last winter emphatically that to hold off uh, escalation in, the, in Ukraine he, he wanted uh, the U.S. to do something about these missiles uh, uh, sites in Romania and Poland at the Russian border, essentially. This doesn't change the fact that the Russian invasion has been horrific. It's totally wrong. The fact is that do as we say, not as we do, will just not convince people in other countries. And so we have the United States uh, self-justifying all the time. And we live in a propaganda world in the United States, overwhelmingly. And so you, you've got most folks in this country, uh, including most Democrats, believing that the United States is completely in the right and that we are like saints in this mm -hmm. conflict. Yeah, I've jokingly said, I guess we normalized relations with Cuba 60 years ago, because obviously we think it's okay to have another power having weapons on our border. And it, 
we wouldn't be hypocrites and say you can't do it in Cuba, but we can do it in Ukraine. Obviously, we are doing that. Yeah, we're allowed to do. You know, it's power. It's uh, it's uh, a might. It's a might makes right. Yeah, yeah. Outlook and whatever way you dress it up, that is yep. U.S. foreign policy. That is a great summation of it right there. Um, back in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Nikita Khrushchev, Premier of the Soviet Union, sends a message to John Kennedy, and it's, it's eloquent. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he does say, you and I ought not to pull on the ends of the rope in which you have tied the knot of war for fear that it may become so tight that we cannot untie it but only cut it out. Um, that struck me. as, yeah. And Khrushchev was in a country where, which had lost 20 million people just a generation earlier in World War II. Yeah, and in, in terms of the present day and uh, partisan issues, I mean, to be clear, uh, I was a Bernie Sanders delegate twice. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that the current Republican Party is fascistic, we have people who are extremely dangerous, like uh, incumbent Senator Ron Johnson. It's yes. horrible that they have any power whatsoever. They should be defeated. That doesn't change the fact that we have to call to account the Democratic Party when it endangers the future of the world. Yeah, you, 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 um, you supported Biden for president in the end. And I love the no more, no honeymoon campaign after the election to say, and now we need to hold you accountable. Yes, at rootsaction.org, where I've worked with colleagues uh, for 10 years now, we worked very hard independently for Bernie Sanders to be the nominee in 2020. After Biden was nominated, we switched to a campaign called Vote Trump Out. We actually had on the ground organizers in Wisconsin, as well as in Michigan and Arizona. And our pledge was vote Trump out, then challenge Biden. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the right approach. We, as progressives, we do two things. We challenge and we fight against the right wing, the xenophobes, the racists, the misogynists. And we also fight against neoliberal corporate power that has so many awful results, including terrible militarism and income inequality. Um, Norman, we've got phone callers all over the place lining up here. So we're going to invite them into the conversation. They're going to start with Janet. Janet, welcome to WORT. Thank you, Bert. You're welcome. Thank you. And Norman, thank you for being on. My question to you, Norman, is what can we do, you know, in this time when it's so um, tempting to look away, uh, so scary? Mm -hmm. um, and um, I also want to put an invitation out because um, I've been part of the Debuse Nuclear War efforts that Norman and others have been leading around the country. We did an action in Madison that Norman referred to um, a week and a half ago. And Thank we've you got for another that. one on Saturday morning. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's, it's uh, easier to do anti-war work than to not do it in terms of the, the personal fear, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. it's good to be able to have, or I believe it's good to have a, um, uh, an angle and, we can feel that we can make some kind of difference. I want to know uh, if Norma thinks that that can make a difference, and I want to invite your listeners to at 10.30 on Saturday morning, um, we're going to be doing a, a war abolition walk. We start 
in James Madison Park at the Gates of Heaven, and we're going to walk up to Mark Pocan's office and Tammy Baldwin's office and hold banners, flyer passers-by, and just continue to raise the visibility of negotiations as an option. It's been so much in the media this week um, for the first time in, in, in months here mm-hmm. in the U.S. So, um, could is is that would that be helpful, Norman? Is that something? Thank you for all of the great organizing work that you and others have been doing in Madison. I mean, one of our really strongest uh, actions nationwide for defuse nuclear war was in Madison, and it's really the day-to-day work, whether anti-war organizing is in or out of fashion it's the day-to-day and year-to-year work it's like a train if you allow a train to stop it's much harder to get it rolling again so it's to keep it going all the time no matter whether we're in the media or out of the media then the long run makes a big difference i think that it's understandable to put it mildly that a lot of people want to look away who wants to wake up and start thinking about nuclear war And often people will say, also understandably, I just don't want to get involved in anti-war activism, anti-nuclear activism. It's just too depressing. And yet I've heard much more often from people who are involved saying that now I don't feel helpless. Now I feel like I'm not just a sitting duck. Now I'm not just being passive. I'm helping to create history instead of just waiting to see what happens. And in the long run, I think that's much healthier individually and for the entire society. Thank you, Norman. And thank you, Janet, for that call. We're going to go to Mike now. Mike, welcome to WRT. Yeah, hello. Yeah, I've got uh, two brief questions. The first one is about the point that's always concerned me, and that's that uh, when the U.S. agreed to remove missiles from Turkey that were on the Soviet border, uh, that part of the uh, agreement following the missile crisis was kept as a secret protocol that wasn't disclosed for another 30 years. Right. And I'm wondering if that somehow links into this whole question of uh, hypocrisy and do as we say, not as we do uh, issue that you just brought up a few minutes ago. Also, my other question, do you happen to know if there's any truth to the rumor that it was uh, Fidel Castro himself that supposedly fired the shot that brought down the uh, American reconnaissance plane um, over Cuba around the time of the Missile Crisis. I've heard that rumor. I doubt it's true, but it seems to come up occasionally. I can take my answers off the air. And thanks for an interesting program. Thanks, take Mike. care, everyone. Thank you. Norman? Yeah, hey, thanks, Mike. On the second point, I'm completely clueless on that, whether uh, what Castro was doing and if he shot, shot at anything at that time. In terms of Turkey, it's a very interesting point. What I've read from a couple of sources is that it was a understanding, tacit and otherwise, uh, for and with JFK as well as Khrushchev, that it would be very damaging politically in the United States for Kennedy to acknowledge at the time that there was this agreement to take out the U.S. nuclear missiles from Turkey. And so it was a quid pro quo, and yet that's why it was kept, uh, it was kept secret. And I think it speaks to an overall atmosphere then and now in the United States. It's a sort of 
hyper-nuclearized, macho, international view that you don't want to be seen to have backed down. Mm -hmm. And the analogy has been that two people are standing in uh, a pool of gasoline and neither one wants to admit that they will stop lighting matches. It is so self-destructive and it's not just a matter of suicide, it's omnicide. It's about all the life on this planet. Absolutely. There were also missiles in Italy that were removed at the same time, the same kind of Jupiter missiles. Um, the fact that, I'm guessing it was because of the midterm elections that Khrushchev didn't want to sabotage Kennedy's power. But right. but what happens, I think, from that is that there's this military might. They blinked. We were tough. Right. So, which almost leads us right into Vietnam from there. Yes. It's the wrong, it's the wrong message. It's the wrong moral of the story, which has largely uh, been propagated. And speaking of midterms, here we are, <clears throat> what, um, 12 days to go mm -hmm. till the end of the voting. I know voting has already started. And I think that uh, there is a relationship between a shortage of democracy and bellicose foreign policy. Mm -hmm. We really don't have much practical impact at the grassroots, unless we really organize. If we simply stick to docilely doing very little, but seeing politics as a sort of a sport that we read about and watch, and then we vote every year or two, that doesn't really create grassroots power to change the direction that we're in. I also do want to say that I think, while I really admire a lot of the work that progressives in the US House of Representatives uh, have been doing and the Progressive Caucus, which until recently was co-chaired by Mark Pocan. I think they've done some really excellent work. I also think that overall, there's a pretty unhealthy relationship between progressive activists and the best members of Congress because we make friends with people who are in Congress. And that's a bad idea. It's similar to what I.F. Stone, the great progressive journalist said, about journalists and people in power. Don't make friends with them. You have your own job to do. Activists have our own job to do. And to make friends with members of Congress who are leading or in the Progressive Caucus because they're nice people, we understand them to be sincere, they're the best in the House and Senate, which is sometimes a low bar, is really to give away a lot of the power that we have which is to speak to the realities that exist in ways that members of Congress often feel constrained against doing. We need to speak truth to and about power. And if we simply enable those who are in an atmosphere on Capitol Hill that mitigates against speaking truth about these huge issues fully, then we become compromised. And one other way I would describe it is, is this. At a certain point, Martin Luther King uh, explained this dynamic in a way that unfortunately is with us now in the autumn of 2022. Dr. King said that the established leaders of the civil rights movement were supposed to represent the movement to the power structure. But so often they ended up representing the power structure to the movement. And we need to ask this uncomfortable question. 
the leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the most progressive members of the House, are they more representing progressive movements to the power structure or do they end up more representing the power structure to progressive movements? Thank you very much for that statement. Um, Callers, we invite you to call 608-256-2001. During the conversation with Norman Solomon, we're talking about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis and lessons for today. And we've got two callers on the line. We're going to start with Steve next. Steve, welcome to WRT. Yeah, hi. Um, I have a question for Mr. Solomon. Uh, I don't know how far his expertise extends, but first I have an interesting family connection to the 62 crisis. My dad, John Wolven, was the head of General Dynamics' high-altitude photo reconnaissance division, and it was his research that produced the U-2's vertical camera. Okay, I'm done with that. Um, The question concerns the executive committee, which was uh, a body of about 15 uh, uh, high-profile people in uh, the Kennedy administration that sat for the 13 days mm-hmm. of the crisis, and the majority were uh, were in favor of, of uh, taking out the Cuban missiles with our own. Yes, and that included uh, Max Taylor of the Joint Chiefs, uh, um, RFK. Uh, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, and the uh, National Security Advisor, McGeorge Bundy. Ultimately, the decision decision for the um, quarantine and not a missile strike on the Cuban inst- or, uh, the Russian in- missiles installed in Cuba, ultimately, that decision rested with uh, the President, JFK. But who, does anybody know who was the key advisor that swayed him to uh, make that fateful and fortunate decision? Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I, I certainly have rather constrained uh, expertise on this, but George Ball was one of them. And um, I, I think also uh, Dean Rusk, surprisingly, uh, though he became such a, a, a public hawk for Vietnam, but you know, he had Rusk, he had Ball. Uh, Ball was later ignored about the Vietnam War. And uh, ultimately, as, as you say, it's a uh, decision that the president made in terms of the historical accounts, fascinating to me that, and as I recall, it was posthumously uh, published, the 13 Days book by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, I should say, uh, RFK was somebody who played a major role talking to the Russian ambassador during those 13 days. And some of that book was um, expurgated, if that's the word, I believe, by Ted Sorensen. So, there are some ways in which uh, we have you know, history that gets filtered by people who have their own uh, their own perspective. That's for sure. Thanks. And next we go to Gil. Gil, welcome to WRT. Thank you. Um, I wanted to um, shift back to comparing um, the Cuban Missile Crisis to the crisis we face now in Ukraine, and mm-hmm. ask Mr. Solomon about. Um, what hope is there for a negotiation? Uh, if we compare these two situations, I mean, Khrushchev and Kennedy did actually have back-channel conversations, if I'm correct mm-hmm. in understanding what happened. That doesn't appear to be going on, although we don't know. Um, do you think that there there is a hope? Because the folks who are 
pushing the current public Biden policy, both here and in Ukraine. Obviously, the Ukrainians, the majority except for a small minority who um, who opposed the war. Uh, what, what hope do you see that uh, we could actually move towards a negotiated settlement and uh, pull back from this brink? Thanks, Such a crucial point, a crucial question. Of course, it's easy to say hope springs eternal, and uh, so we should not, uh, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, and all of that. The reality is that although you had Secretary of Defense Austin speaking reportedly to his counterpart uh, in recent days for the first time in, in quite a while, uh, it, you have these two military, essentially, leaders of the U.S. and Russia finally talking a bit. That's good, but I think uh, the point from Gill is quite correct. From mm-hmm. everything that we know, there's there's a lot of public bombast between uh, the Kremlin and the White House, but there's, from what we know, not actual communication of substance, uh, back channel, and so forth. I think it's extremely, not only dangerous, but dumb, just in self-interest, because we presumably want uh, the children of the world to grow and live for decades and their children to live. And yet this is uh, really counterproductive. I think this is being enabled, frankly, by members of Congress. And Mm -hmm. this is where it is a real failure of leadership. And we expect, we would expect uh, that militaristic right-wingers would just be pounding the drum for militarism. But in many ways, the biggest problem right now, especially with Biden being a Democrat, is Democrats in Congress. It's really difficult to find people in the Congress who are willing to speak up unequivocally for diplomacy. We've seen a complete collapse, Mm -hmm. almost collapse, except for Ro Khanna, of members of the Progressive Caucus in the last 72 hours, vis-a-vis the letter that was sent to Biden on Monday by 30 House members and retracted on Tuesday. I mean, this is just, uh, I can't even say it's ridiculous. It's its tragically absurd that now the word diplomacy has become a dirty word. And so, yes, the letter was mishandled in terms of perhaps the timing and the partial revision and the signing going back to early summer, but being released only this week. That aside, the fact is, that when you have members of Congress who want to stand up for the concept of diplomacy, we have a big problem. And there's a mythology being put forward that the U.S. government has engaged in substantive diplomacy over Ukraine with Russia. And as Jeffrey Sachs wrote in Financial Times several months ago, that's not at all the case. The United States has taken an attitude of, uh, that not only reflects Biden's reference to, not in so many words, desiring regime change, but also encirclement with uh, military uh, weaponry of uh, Russia in terms of deployments in Ukraine that really predate the crisis Mm -hmm. this year. Tremendous quantities, billions of dollars worth of weapons. Just imagine, this goes back to do as we say, not as we do. Can you imagine... uh, ABM systems that could be retrofitted with aggressive nuclear weapons 
on the border of Canada or Mexico pointed into the United States, it would be completely intolerable. So the absolute inability to, in when, any way, and give an iota of interest or um, illumination towards how things look out of the Kremlin windows is part and parcel of why, frankly, we have even best members of Congress like Mark Pocan basically folding up the tent and refusing to speak out for diplomacy mm -hmm. or pretending that Biden has been engaged in diplomacy in this crisis, which he absolutely has not. And, and just as a reminder, Janet had called in earlier to say at 1030 on Saturday, there's a walk starting at James Madison Park at Gates of Heaven. If you wish to participate in that to call out for peace uh, and diplomacy. Um, it seems that one of the major lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis is a myth. It seems that we grew up with the idea that we went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, we were tough, and there was a famous quote, and then they blinked, end yeah. of quote. And the true lesson is that it was diplomacy, diplomacy which saved us, diplomacy which resolved this, um, which was maddening to the military. Curtis LeMay, General Curtis LeMay, who was in that executive committee, mm -hmm. days after the missile crisis had been averted and diplomacy had succeeded, claimed it to be the biggest defeat in U.S. history and that we should still invade and bomb Cuba. Um, but diplomacy seems to be the lesson, but the lesson that was learned is actually military might. If the United States in October of 1962 had proceeded to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Soviet Union, there's an excellent chance we wouldn't be having this conversation because there would be no WORT. Mm -hmm. There would be essentially very little life in this country right. uh, because even then, the capacity to inflict uh, <coughs> nuclear catastrophe of an unimaginable scale already existed. Mm -hmm. There's something that we should uh, mention, which is the scientific knowledge now about the existence of nuclear winter. Mm -hmm. which is to say that a substantial nuclear exchange would be climate change to an unbelievable extent, uh, making agriculture virtually impossible on this planet. And within a matter of months, you have uh, mass starvation and uh, the expiration of the lives of almost everybody on the planet. Mm -hmm. This is stuff that we rarely hear about. It's much more important uh, to hear about the latest horse racing of uh, congressional campaigns or whatever. And this just is excluded from, it's almost a paradigm that the more existentially important it is for the survival of humanity, the less likely we are to hear about it in corporate media. Exactly. Let, let's dive back to 60 years ago. 60 years ago today, um, one of the key moments that was only came to light decades later was the, the existence of Soviet submarines that were there in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. The U.S. military was dropping depth charges on one of the submarines in particular. The submarine which the, the old stories have it that it had nuclear tipped torpedoes. The reality is it was a 15 kiloton weapon which is the size of the Hiroshima bomb. So this commander of the sub is being pummeled by depth charges for a day. They're losing oxygen. People are fainting. And he is out of radio contact. He assumes the war has started, and he authorizes the use of 
the nuclear weapon. He has to get a second person on board to agree with him. The second person does agree with him. However, on that submarine, Vasily Arkhipov, who should be in everyone's, everyone's front of your brain, Vasily Arkhipov was the overall commander who happened to be on that submarine, and he objected. He is the only one who objected. That, that nation, on this day, the last day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, would have would have changed everything. But one person stood up and saved us all. So can you talk about that story? I suppose there are two takeaways that are available from that real life story. One is that our futures hang by a thread. Yeah. The other is that what one person does can make a huge difference. And what we do collectively can make an even huger difference. And a lot of the tacit messaging we get from politics and mass media is that such matters are a kind of a spectator sport and that we simply watch. This is antithetical to changing history instead of just consuming it. And that's where I think we keep coming back to the essential need for activism. Mm -hmm. When we get organized, we can prevent some of the worst things that might otherwise occur. I think that was Howard Zinn who said that it didn't, doesn't matter who sits in the White House, it matters who sits in and protests. Yeah, and it turns out that both are true. Right, <laughs> right, oh yeah. Very, very Absolutely. Yeah. I, everyone should vote. We've got 32 locations in Madison open right now. Open early voting is in place. Uh, yeah, we might say state. not only who's in the Oval Office, but who's uh, holding the two, uh, the two seats from each state in yeah, the Senate. The senator race in this state is critically important. Again, early voting has started. You can vote today. Um, we've got John on the line. I'd like to welcome John to WRT. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned the situation with the Cuban sub. I would urge everybody who has any interest in this topic of nuclear war, nuclear winter, to read Daniel Ellsberg's book, excellent book, mm -hmm. uh, Doomsday Machine. Uh, he was a nuclear war planner, mm -hmm. um, ex-Marine, and one of the things that he said or he, he brought out was the, the issue of delegation. So there's been discussion about how Khrushchev and Kennedy had back channels. That's fine. That's fine. But it came down to the guys on the sub not doing it. And the Americans had the same, had the same operation. Ellsberg found in, in Korea and other places that un unlike the, the myth that there's a nuclear football, that the presidents can be the one who issues the command, there's been delegation of authority to commanders in the field, and as Ellsberg writes, to individual pilots of planes. If they thought war had started, they were authorized to go to, to, to bomb Russia and China. So delegation, is, to me, is a question. Does it still exist? Or is there some centralization? I assume delegations still exist. And so if there's a, a blackout of communications due to a solar storm or something, somebody could do it. That's my point. Thank you, John. Norman? Well, it's a great point. And for one thing, I want to really um, echo what John said about The Doomsday Machine. It is a brilliant book. It's a very important book by Daniel Ellsberg. And it's something that is uh, lacking in the U.S. Uh, awareness to understand the dimensions of issues like delegation. I mean, what, what we just heard is, is quite accurate. The summary of what 
Daniel Ellsbury learned as a nuclear war planner. And because of, and this is something that I would really emphasize and that Dan Ellsberg emphasizes in the book, there are 400 nuclear missiles mm -hmm. land-based in the United States. They are armed, they are ready to go. They are ICBMs in five different states. And they are on hair trigger alert because they are land-based, unlike the uh, air-launched and sea-based nuclear, nuclear missiles. Uh, the ICBMs are vulnerable. So in the military mentality, they have to be on here trigger alert. Because we have ICBMs in this country, the president has perhaps 10 or 15 minutes to decide whether it's really a flock of geese or really a nuclear attack on the United States, and therefore whether to unleash ICBMs, which basically would trigger the end of life on Earth. And Dan Ellsberg, in his great book, The Doomsday Machine, really uh, underscores and explains why ICBMs should be shut down. And this is a great example of how rationality, as expressed, for instance, by former Defense Secretary William Perry, who calls for shutting down ICBMs, is really banished from traditional political discourse. You know, we delivered uh, Roots Action and Institute for Public Accuracy. We delivered every single member of Congress in Washington with a personal letter from Daniel Ellsberg and a copy of his book, The Doomsday Machine, to emphasize, mm -hmm. as he did, as Dan did in his cover letter, we should be shutting down these ICBMs. And yet, it's really difficult to get any member of Congress to stand up and say that. Exactly. You had the defused nuclear war campaign, which had four major planks. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. Uh, one of them is to take the ICBMs off of hair trigger alert. Uh, another is to reinstate the INF treaty that I mentioned, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty in Europe, also to reinstate the ABM treaty, both of which are extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, we need declaration of no first use policy of nuclear weapons, which is necessary, though insufficient. And we need a re-evaluation and a shift in the deployment of nuclear weapons to take them off offensive posture. And I do, I'm really glad you mentioned it because anybody who wants more info, uh, please go to diffusenuclearwar.org and we're really going to be doing ongoing organizing in the months and years ahead. So that's diffusenuclearwar.org. Correct. And I also want to invite people uh, at rootsaction.org. We have 1.2 million people now getting action alerts and we hope you'll make it 1.2 million in one. It's really about organizing, and you can uh, sign up for these bulletins at rootsaction.org. I think I signed up yesterday when I, when I was there. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. Thanks. Hey, um, you were on Democracy Now! just a few days ago, and you said so many important things in about four minutes. You highlighted silence equals death. Can you talk about that? It's a insight that was expressed in just that way by the AIDS movement mm -hmm. in the 1980s. Absolutely. A recognition and uh, the uh, clear expression that passivity will be our death knell. That if we simply wait for others to take care of the situation and improve it, then we're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So silence in so many spheres and never more so than in issues of war and peace and nuclear weapons, 
silence is a way of ratifying death agendas. Mm-hmm. You also highlighted the the quote from the '60s that war is profitable. Invest your children. Yes, and now it's less invest your children because now with drones and high tech weaponry. More of it is push button rather than on the ground troops. A lot of it is through the aerospace industry. They're making a killing mm-hmm. uh, with the deployment of ever more so-called sophisticated nuclear weapons, and the arms industry is making a killing, among other things, with boosting the Pentagon budget and massive arms shipments to Ukraine. So the investment now is in. The machinery of death on a global scale, and we're getting F thirty fives being into Madison here within the next period of time to be based here um, as one small part of that huge issue. Norman, we've got less than a minute left. What what's your final message for us? Well, one I'd like to uh, mention is that. Uh, WORT is one of the essential community radio stations in the country. So just a reminder, you know, how does the blues song go? You, you don't miss your water till the well runs dry. Don't <laughs> let the well run dry. We need WORT. We need independent media outlets and we need independent movements. And whether our concern is anywhere on a range, our main concerns are within a range of uh, what needs to be done in this country domestically and foreign policy. Get active. Don't let the mass media make you passive. That is an important message. And I would like to invite you to stay on just for a few minutes after the show. Um, We're about to go off to Letters in Politics and the BBC News. I want to thank Chuck for engineering this whole thing, Jade for being the mastermind behind it all, and Norman Solomon. what What an important and delightful conversation this has been. This has been inspiring. So thank you so much for being here. And I welcome, thanks for all the callers. And now we turn it off to you. So we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.